we were building in the Middle East and suddenly there's no money to finish a project. We had a situation where AIG, all the insurance companies collapsed. You know, that, that was a very tough time. So we sort of scaled up, I suppose, at the wrong time. We had the benefit of it for a few years, but um, it certainly took me many years then to almost get back to where I was again when the economy tanked. You're listening to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic, the podcast where the most high-performing owners of aesthetic clinics and med spas from all over the world tell their stories and share the strategies and insights that allowed them to grow their business from often humble beginnings to soaring success. If you've ever tried to build a clinic, you'll know that it takes a lot more than just being a great doctor or practitioner, and it helps when you learn from the best in the industry. So join me, Miriam Shaviv, host and director of content at Brainstorm Digital, as we explore how aesthetic clinic owners just like you have developed the mindset, skills, and experience to transform their businesses, and how you can do the same. Let's jump in. Dr. Patrick Tracy is one of the best known and most adventurous aesthetic doctors in the world. He grew up in Ireland during the Troubles and later traveled the world, smuggling cars from Germany to Turkey, witnessing the fall of the Berlin Wall, living in Saddam Hussein's Baghdad, working as a ship surgeon in California, and working with the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Australia. These all episodes recounted in his highly entertaining memoir, The Needle and the Damage Done. On his return to Dublin, he founded Aylesbury Clinic, where he was a pioneer in the very early field of aesthetic medicine. He became known for his research on the influence of Botox on the brain, and nowadays is consulted by doctors worldwide on dermal fillers complications. Patients flock to his doors, including famously the King of Pop himself, Michael Jackson, while he lived in Ireland. And in 2018, Dr. Tracy was given a special My Face, My Body Award in recognition of his scientific contribution to aesthetic medicine. What many people don't realize is that Dr. Tracy has had downs as well as ups in his career. At the time of the financial crash, his chain of worldwide clinics collapsed, leaving him to start almost all over again. Today, we're going to talk about what that painful episode was like, what he learned from the experience about how to scale an aesthetic clinic and also how to deal with tough times. Let's dive in. Dr. Tracy, welcome to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic. We're thrilled to have you here. No, thank you for having me also, Miriam, yeah. It's my pleasure. Um, and I just wanna say, first of all, how much I really enjoyed your book. Um, one thing that really stood out was that you seem to have a real knack of being in the right, right, right place at the right time. You witnessed the Berlin Wall coming down. You ended up on the phone to Nelson Mandela. You were in Iraq before the invasion. To me, it almost felt like almost a chronicle of the twentieth, the late twentieth century and early twenty-first century, as much as um, as much as a, a personal history. I can appreciate that. Some of the things I was there for, um, and some of the, I suppose, situations I put myself in. Um, there's no doubt about it. There's a touch almost of Mr. Gumpfoot in it, you know, sort of um, if you were to sort of make a Netflix movie of this. And it's funny, I got a scam the other day. Um, somebody saying we're from Netflix, a literary agent in the States, the one take over the book. And we did due diligence and 
the level of it was quite um, unusual and sophisticated. But I suppose growing up in Northern Ireland, I had the whole, I suppose, background of the troubles. We grew up with it. And then the Berlin Wall, I wanted to be there because it was the fall of communism. And I knew the difficulties, I suppose, the Russians were having in Afghanistan and Ronald Reagan taking the credit for, I suppose, the fall of the Soviet Union. But um, I had lived in Germany and I'd lived in Berlin. And I'd lived in Germany, as you know, from my book during the period 81, 82, and part of 83, um, particularly when I was trying to fund my way through medical school. I have to ask that reading through the first half of your book in particular, um, it's really striking how widely you traveled and how widely you worked. Again, Ireland, obviously where you grew up, New Zealand, USA, Iraq, Turkey. And I was wondering whether there was something in your nature that made you want to travel like that, or was it something about Ireland and your upbringing? No, I believe that certainly the Irish tend to be wanderers anyway. You'll find them anywhere in the world, there's no doubt about that. Wales, a, co- a country beside us of similar, I suppose, uh, population, you never meet them anywhere. But if you go to the bottom of New Zealand, Antarctica, top of Canada, <clears throat> you'll meet Irish people. But even from a young age, when I was six to 10, I wanted to travel. You know, and I sort of was, uh, when I listened to Southwave or shortwave radios of the period, and they said the Radio Volga um, potato output for this year will be 23, 2% up on next year and blah, blah, blah. And you realised it was all Soviet propaganda um, because these people were, in essence, hungry. I looked at a different way. I was saying, my God, somebody there 5,000 miles away is actually talking to me through space. So I always wanted to visit Murmansk or Vladivostok or Moscow, you know, um, from a very young age. So you've worked in many different, um, many different medical systems um, and vast experience really as a doctor, but then you decided to specialize in aesthetics. Now in your book, that decision to specialize in aesthetics very early on um, is really very, very natural. W- did you have any thought at all about deciding to specialize? Was that something you really grappled with or was it just really how it came across in the book, just a natural progression of what you were doing? You forget one big thing. I didn't specialize in it. There was no such field of medicine. I was one of the ones that has contributed invented that created. It. Okay. You know, invented it. Yeah. The first thing was the use of botulinum. Um, Gene Carruthers wrote that paper in 92, so we started using about 96. The second thing was the use of hyaluronic acid by um, as a filler in Malmo by QMed at the time. That was 1996. And the third thing was, um, I suppose, the application of um, IPL. I mean, Patrick Bitter did the... Um, I suppose, tests in California, our good old friend um, set up in Tel Aviv in Israel originally. I call it the evolution rather than the emergence or rather than the birth, because um, it, it did, I suppose, come from associated strands all coming together. And it was really technology that brought it forward rather than any wonderful eureka moment, we should do this or that, you know. So um, for the first time, I suppose, we could treat a lot of skin imperfections from broken vessels to pigmentation to rosacea 
by um, the use of IPL devices. We could make people look younger through the use of dermal fillers of botulinum. And uh, I suppose um, I really, really felt that um, uh, I could set up a clinic. I, the bank wouldn't back me on it, even though I bought it in one of the most expensive areas of Dublin because they didn't know what I was talking about. So I really had to tell them that I was setting up a dermatology clinic, even though, you know, yeah. So what, what gave you the, you know, the, the confidence to go ahead and do it anyway? I guess um, you, were, you were a true pioneer. Um, <laughs> now people still have, it's not really the same dilemma. No. People still, they want to set up their own clinics. You know, they still sometimes have to take a financial leap in the dark. So what gave you the confidence to take that financial leap in the dark? I don't know. It's like an intrinsic motivation to bring you anywhere. You know in your heart you're going to be okay. It's the same reason as how did you travel through Kurdistan on your own when you know Saddam's army was there ready to arrest you at every moment? The risks are mostly, I suppose, in your head and will remain there until you, I suppose, take action about it. If you fail, I mean, the world isn't going to collapse. You know, most best entrepreneurs in the United States have failed at least two or three times. Elon Musk, Richard Branson will tell you that, you know. So you, so, so part of entrepreneurship, it almost sounds like, is just being able to, to have that confidence and to, and, to, and to take risks, really. Sure, okay. And I'll tell you, there's some risks I took to do it again I would not do. You know, like which ones would you not do again? Which one which would you not take again? Okay, but we'll, we'll say somebody wants to scale up their clinics and you just look at it. You really have to ask yourself, why do you want to do this? Is this some ego trip or really are you going to scale up your clinics? We had 20 clinics in India at one stage. We had clinics in Moscow, Istanbul. We had clinics in Serbia. We had clinics in London. We had clinics in Dubai. We had clinics in Saudi Arabia. We had clinics in Rotterdam. You know, so the lessons I learned from that are, number one, have a very good management team in each place that you can trust. And I really mean trust. The second thing is you're not there yourself in any of the clinics. And these guys are probably, to be honest, not as good as you are, but they're really substituting for you. It's almost like Gordon Ramsay building a restaurant and having somebody else cooking his food, you know? And the third thing is if you're going to do insurance, Make sure all the doctors are doing it themselves. They're not running it through a corporate insurance because you have a problem. They have a problem, rather. It's you that have to deal with it. And you may have never seen the patient in your life. You most probably haven't seen the patient in your life. So if you're going to scale up, I would say, keep it simple. We were building in the Middle East and suddenly there's no money to finish a project. We had a situation where AIG, all the insurance companies collapsed. And, um, you know, that, that was a very tough time. So we sort of scaled up. I suppose, at the wrong time. We had the benefit of it for a few years, but um, it certainly took me many years then to almost get back to where I was again when the economy tanked, you know? So you didn't decide then to go create this whole empire again? <laughs> I didn't decide to do that. No, no, we, we've all or now. We have three clinics. They all work well. We have lovely staff. I'm in direct control um all of them 
So it, it, it sounds like that's one of the biggest lessons, one of the biggest difficulties that you came across mm. in scaling was really being able to replicate yourself. Of course, you can replicate systems, but at the end of the day, those people are still not you. That's right. Absolutely. So sometimes if you have a high-class, high-end clinic that's possibly turning over as much as other clinics, you know, scaling up doesn't necessarily mean that it's you replicating your clinic or your best clinic and multiplying it by five or ten you know and And i think the critical point that you're really making is that scaling up isn't always good um really the name of this podcast is how i scaled my aesthetic clinic and kind of the underlying assumption is that everyone wants to grow and grow and grow but actually what you're saying is that sometimes a sensible person and a sensible business person um, and also someone who's interested in the good work-life balance um, actually has to consider the limits of growth as well and that perhaps we get to the point where actually we don't want to scale that much and that's part of the journey understanding that as well. There's no doubt about that you'll find now two people who tend to do it so nobody at 50 is going to scale up whereas you would when you're 35. Then I find the older people who do scale up, they're usually people with a lot of money that really don't know the business very well. Um, I'm approached by them from time to time. People that have got maybe about 250 million, nothing to do with it. Investors, particularly I find in the hair market are there and they want to copy you and they know nothing about business. And I'm watching those even in Dublin at the moment, people who want to scale up that really don't know the business and I'll not mention anything because people might know who I'm talking about, but um, you really need to be in the business quite a while before you scale up. And then you really need the right people in position. And you also really, really want to be passionate and want to do it because you're going to give up a hell of a lot of your time. If you're going to do it properly, you have to keep an eye on everything, you know? And uh Again, um, you are someone who in various ways was successful pretty much in everything you did from very early on. Yeah. When you experienced, you built up this um, this large um, network of clinics. And yes. as you said, the crash happened and most of them disappeared. How does someone who has built something so large and really has, has been so successful his entire life, how, do you, how did you actually deal emotionally with, with those clinics disappearing? You know, you just got to move on. You have no other choice. Um, we're now in a very strong position, turning more than we were certainly just at the turn 10 years ago. And every part of the business has been worked out and is almost templated. There's some things we cut back on, for instance, doing um, a lot of liposuction. Um, because with liposuction, you really need doctors, proceduralists, they know what they're doing. Um, we didn't have too much difficulty with that, but we had one doctor who came in after hours that used our equipment without our permission. And we even got caught for vicarious liability for that because it's our equipment, our premises, our head of notepad, even though it wasn't an employee. So, you know, it's one of those, you, you really learn. And sometimes I suppose you learn 
the hard way for the simple reason that nobody has done some of the things before when you scale up. And um, certainly I would be a wonderful advisor now to anybody who wants to scale up, you know. But we've survived, we've come out the other end and, you know, we, we've been very lucky. But of all the big operations in Dublin at the time, there was five big ones, we're the only ones still going that survived the crash, you know. Two of them were from um, the UK and they crashed as well, you know. Looking back at this whole journey that you've had, yes. um, has your definition of success changed over time? What's a, what does success actually mean to you at this point? That's a very good question. I suppose the main reason it's a good question is success never meant to me the way it is to a lot of doctors. A lot of doctors equate success with financial success. Um, whereas my sense of what success should be is more a legacy, what you've left the world when you leave it, the people that you've helped. Even our call today, even though it's my day off, I had to go in to deal with a, a major problem from another clinic where a patient had a potential vascular occlusion that could take out part of her jaw. And in some ways, that's a measure of success that if other doctors can trust you to fix their problems. Um, I know there'd be a lot to be said for hanging out in St. Petersburg, Florida for five years in a nice big apartment or whatever, but I'd probably get bored with that as well. I was at a big conference in London at the weekend and um, with some wonderful colleagues and their measure of success is retiring at 55. And um, I suppose one or two have bought properties in the Azores and have boats, that type of thing. That's fine. I would never, I suppose, um, contradict anybody's attitude and what success is. Maybe I'm the fool um, that I'll probably still be working when I'm 70. I've really enjoyed, I suppose, the last many years, I suppose, um, traveling to parts of the world that in a busy day in Dublin, you'd never get a chance to go to or you wouldn't even think of going there, you know. And then that China as well. It sounds like in addition to leaving a legacy, part of success for you is being able to have the freedom to pursue the things that you want to do, the travel, the intellectual pursuits. I, I get a lot of kick out of that, you know, sort of going to somewhere like Afghanistan as present state, it wouldn't bother me that much. I don't think that I'd be, be attacked by any of the Pashtun fighters or the Taliban. Maybe I would, I don't know, but I've done a lot of my life like that and learn from those people you know given that we're now um all these months into the pandemic you must be dying to be able to travel again um in in any case thank you very very much for a an absolutely fascinating conversation and we're going to put the link to your book and to your clinic etc oh yes well, readers certainly um can obviously get the bookstore books on amazon medically um at all stages, I have my cell phone on our website. And um, I suppose um, I have a fairly big presence on Facebook, um, maybe 30,000, 40,000 people. And I only mention that for the simple reason that a lot of doctors with vascular occlusions or complications from all over the world contact me through Messenger. Um, but um, if they put in aylesburyclinic.ie, they should be able to see our clinics and... Um, and contact me that way. P Tracy Gmail is my 
I suppose, um, email address. One theme that we didn't get to talk about today at all, but which is very, very much present in your books, is is, is managing complications. Yes. Maybe, maybe, we do, maybe we can do an interview about another time, because that's, of, of course, of genuine interest to everyone. And, uh, and, that, um, that, and, I, and I certainly recommend that people read the book about that. Dr. Tracy, thank you very much for being such a, um, a, a thought-provoking and thoughtful guest on how I scaled my aesthetic clinic. Um, and for everyone else, I will see you on the next episode. <laughs>